Am I on now? Thank you. It's so embarrassing. I'm sorry. All right. Uh, it's just exciting. I'm, I'm really excited to kick off a brand new series. I thought of that all on my own. Did you know that? That was pretty creative, all right? Looking at the set. But we are. We're getting ready to start a brand new series, and it is going to be an exciting one. We're calling it Bring It, and we're going to deal with some really tough questions that sometimes we get asked, and sometimes we ask ourselves, but maybe are afraid, especially if you're a follower of Christ, of being out loud with it. And we're going to begin with the easiest question first this weekend, and that is the question, does God exist? That was supposed to be funny, all right? That's probably the hardest question to try and answer. Does God exist? Is God real? Now, what I want to do this weekend is I want to ask you to participate in the message with me. And the way that I want you to do that is I want you to use your imagination with me, all right? So I want everybody to participate with their imagination. And I want you to imagine that you are a college freshman. And as a college freshman, you are taking your classes at a secular university. And the hardest class that you have this semester, this first semester, is Philosophy 101. And the professor for this class has a reputation of being very, very intimidating. In fact, it is a monumental achievement to get an A in his class. It is the first class of the day, and you have entered the classroom. It's an 8 a.m. class, and everybody's there on time because of the reputation of this professor. Nobody wants to be humiliated by him. At exactly 8.01, he comes walking into the room while the 130 of you are sitting out there in the lecture hall. And true to form, he puts his hands on his hips, and he looks out, making eye contact with everyone, including you. And then he turns to the board. And he writes this statement down. He writes the statement, there is no God. And then he turns right back around and he looks at you and the rest of the class and he says, I want to announce that there is no room for God in this classroom. It is my goal this semester to convince you that God does not exist. Especially the God of the Christians, the God of the Bible. I will offer you logical proof as to why he does not exist. And furthermore, it is this God, this God of the Christians, this God of the Bible, who is responsible, along with his followers, for much of the wars that we've had, much of the misery, intolerance, and phobias in our world. To you, it's like a slap in the face because you're a follower of Christ. And you look around you to see how everybody else is responding and you're watching your peers kind of nod with the prof like they're agreeing and the others look indifferent and you wonder, what am I in for? Over the next several weeks of the semester, 
You have to put up with this professor continuously making disparaging remarks about God, about Christians, and about the Bible. And as you come in every day in this classroom and you look at that statement, there is no God, your mind begins to fill with doubts and all of a sudden you see it as a question you're asking. And the question is this, is there no God? Two-thirds of the way through the semester... When you're coming up to a week of study break, the professor announces a challenge to you and the rest of the class. He says, I know you're going on a study break, and I want to challenge you with something. I want to challenge anyone who still thinks that there is a God to go home and prepare a paper defending your belief in God, offering some kind of logical arguments towards the possibility that God exists. And then I want you to present it first day back from class. Anybody who does so and makes a logical case for the possibility of God will receive an A for the course. But if I deem that you have failed, you will automatically flunk the course and I'll see you next semester. As he says that, a voice inside of you goes, do it. And you begin to argue with that voice inside of you. What are you, crazy? Do that? I can't, I can't do that. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not smart enough to do that. I'll be humiliated. I don't want to repeat this class again. It's hard enough as it is. And while you're arguing with yourself, the other 129 students file out of the lecture hall. Nobody stops to talk to the professor. Nobody offers to take up his challenge. And all of a sudden you realize that you're the only one left sitting there. And somebody's watching you. And that somebody is a professor. And both of you make eye contact. And he looks at you and crosses his arms and he says, So, uh, are you going to be like the rest of your peers and chicken out this challenge? Nobody's ever called you a chicken before. Before your mind has any opportunity to filter your emotions, you just burst out and say, well, I'm not chicken. Sure, I'll do it. And as you walk up to give him your name, you start to feel sick. And as you head out the classroom looking for the nearest bathroom, you hear him say, it'll be a delight to have you again next semester. You head home, and when you get home, your parents, who haven't seen you for two-thirds of the semester, are anxious to meet you and greet you. But as soon as you walk in the room, you say to them, I am in big trouble. And all the worst kinds of thoughts go through your mom and dad's mind as you all sit down, and they nervously ask, what is the trouble? And you announce, I have to prove that God, I have to prove logically that there's a possibility that God exists. And your mother she just has an absolute look of relief on her face as she kind of wipes the sweat from her head. Your father looks relieved, and your mother smiles. And you look at your mother, and you say, why are you smiling? And your mother says to you, well, honey, that's so simple. You just go tell that professor that you believe that God exists because the B-I-B-L-E says so. <laughs> and you feel sick again. You say, mother, if I say that to the professor, I'll be the laughingstock of the class. He says, I mean, I'll be affirming everything he says, that we just believe things because they're written there, that we don't think for ourselves, that we don't look at the world. And that's when your father begins to smile. And you think to yourself, oh, my goodness. You say, Dad, why are you smiling? Your dad says to you, well, you know what? I, I think I know what the answer is. Well, what is it, Dad? Let's call Pastor Dale. After all, that's what he gets paid for. 
So you make the phone call, and here we are. Welcome to my study. I'm glad you brought your pen and your pad. And boy, do I ever find this a challenge. I need to let you know, I'm not smart enough to help you get an A in that presentation. But never fear, because there are some wonderful resources out there. Some brilliant Christian men, intellectuals, who I think if you take a good look at what they have to say, will help you a lot. One of them who I really like is a guy, you might want to write his name down, by the name of Dr. William Lane Craig. So why don't you just jot that down. He's got a wonderful website. It's called reasonablefaith.org. Reasonablefaith.org. And I think if you go there and take a good look at it, read a lot of the articles there and uh, listen to some of the sound bites and whatnot, I think you're going to get help an awful lot. Now, understand that like most intellectual smart people, you're going to have to have a dictionary and an encyclopedia with you when you read what he has to say. So here's what I'm going to try to do, all right? I'm going to try to bring it down to, like, my level, and and hopefully I won't make it too simple for you, but let's just kind of look at some of the things he has to say, and then you can go back and smarten it up. How's that sound? And, And hopefully get an A in that class and teach that professor a thing or two, all right? Now, we don't need Dr. Lane to begin with because it's obvious that if what your professor means is that prove God by making him appear, you are going to fail the class. All right? Because nobody can do that. Nobody can just make make God appear right there. But just because you can't see God doesn't mean he exists. I mean, think about all the other things in life that we have no problem believing in that we can't see. For instance, love. Love. I mean, I can't go, whew, and make love appear. All of a sudden, there is the nature of love. Which, by the way, the Bible says that God, in his essence, is love. Or take the wind. I can't just go, poof, and make the wind appear. It's interesting, Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that the Spirit moves like the wind. You don't know where he's coming from or where he's going or how he's working. Anyway, I have no problem believing in love, however, and I have no problem believing in the wind. How about you? Do you have any problem with that? And I doubt your professor has any problem with that. You can't see it, but you believe in it. Why do you believe in love and why do you believe in the wind? Because you feel the effects of their existence. You feel it tangibly and intangibly. I feel love coming at me and I feel love inside of me. I go out and I feel the wind, but I can't see the wind. So just because you can't see something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It, it very possibly does exist. We know love exists. We know the wind exists. And as followers of Christ, we know that God exists as well. But I don't think that will get you an A in the class. All right? So let's talk about the universe. All right? Now, let's define the universe. Let's see what you've been learning in school. What is the universe? Very good, very good. You're learning a lot in your physics class. The the universe is all of space and time, including matter and energy. Now, let's imagine that we go for a walk in the woods. And as we're walking along the woods, right in the middle of the woods, we come up to this blue sphere. And it's just sitting there. And you say to me, Pastor Dale... How did that blue sphere get there? And I say to you, well, it's just always been there. And you go, wait a minute, uh, Pastor Dale, here's, here's what I'm really trying to say. I mean, who do you think put that blue sphere there? And I say to you, well, that, that blue sphere, 
it's just, wow, it's cool. It's stuck, all right? We're prepared for that. That blue sphere, it's just always... <laughs> it's just always, it's just always been there. Like, as in forever and eternity. Now, at that moment... When you hear me say that, I'm going to guess you're going to think that I'm really messing with your mind or I am totally weird. Because everything in life tells you that things don't just pop out of nothing. They, somebody's got, got to put it there. It's got, to, it's got to show up some way, somehow. Now, take that blue sphere and imagine for a moment that it represents Wrigley Field. The question is still the same, no matter how big it is, how did Wrigley Field get there? Or imagine it's the earth. Same issue, how did it get there? Imagine that it's the universe. Size doesn't change anything. The question still is, how on earth did it get there? Now, there are two possibilities. For a long time, up until about the 20th century, Many people who weren't followers of the Lord believed that the universe was just eternal. It just had always been there. I mean, you can't explain how something comes out of nothing. So we'll just end the conversation by saying it's always been there. Aristotle said that. A man by the name of Lao Tzu said that. And that was kind of the thinking that uh, occupied everybody's mind. Nobody could accept the fact that it just had popped into being somehow. So they just said it's always, always been there. But then something happened. Somebody put forth, by the name of Albert Einstein, the theory of relativity. And then there's the second law of thermodynamics. And then there's Hubble Telescope. And all three point to the fact and have convinced so many scientists, many who are not Christians, that the universe actually was caused. It was actually put here. It actually has a beginning, had a beginning, and it has an ending. They call it the singular act, or many of us have heard in science, the Big Bang. But it hasn't just always been here. It actually was put here. Now, there are two possible ways that the universe was put here. Some mathematicians want to say that the universe is a result of abstract number sets or formulas. But there's a little problem with that. To our knowledge, nothing abstract ever creates anything. The other possibility is that an unembodied mind... Put it here. And we who are believers in Jesus Christ believe that unembodied mind is God. Based on just science alone, it is logical that God could have created the universe since it just didn't happen. Somebody somehow made it happen. Now, there are some secular atheists who struggle a lot with them. And one guy by the last name of Dennert, he's come up with a theory. He said, okay, I'll accept that. But you know what? Um, 
I think the universe actually created itself. That is so absurd. Why? Because in order for the universe to create itself, it would already have to exist, right? So that's like out the window. That's desperation. Now, you may have heard of Richard Dawkins. I'm sure your professor mentioned him. He's one of the called, so-called new atheists, very popular guy. You know what? Even he has to admit the possibility that something pretty incredible created the universe. Here's what he said in a Time uh, magazine article. He said, there could be something incredibly grand and incomprehensible and beyond our present understanding that created the universe, but he does not want to say that it was God. Doesn't want to say it. He likes to say aliens, some other kind of gods. I mean, he goes all over the map. He doesn't want to admit it's the God of the Bible. You'll find out why in just a few minutes. But I love what Paul Davies, the physicist, says. Listen to him. He said, the coming into being of the universe, as discussed in modern science, is not just a matter of imposing some sort of organization upon a previous incoherent state, but literally the coming into being of all physical things from nothing. Now that's a famous physicist, Paul Davies, who's saying that. He's saying the logic leads to the fact that out of nothing came Came the universe. Now, in order for the universe to be caused, in order for the universe to come into being, it would mean that whoever or whatever caused it to come into being would have to be unlike the universe. That means that they would have to transcend, or it would have to transcend space and time. It would uh, have to lack uh, physical, uh, uh, material body. It means that it would have to be timeless. And if it's timeless, it would have to be unchanging. And if it's unchanging, it would have to be immaterial because material things are constantly changing at the molecular and atomic level. In other words, it would, it would have to be without beginning and therefore without end. Wow, who does that sound like? Sounds like the God of the Bible. I want you to listen to a couple passages out of the New Testament. Listen to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Listen to what it says about Jesus. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is timeless. He is unchanging. He is not material in essence. Though he appeared in the flesh, in essence he is not. For he is very God. Now having heard that, listen to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. And now in these final days, God has spoken to us through his Son. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance. And through the Son, he created the universe. Wow. I mean, science is kind of coming around to what Scripture has always revealed and told to us in concept and in principle. There's a lot of logic to that. A lot of logic to the possibility that God created the universe. But uh, let me talk about one more argument we can use. And there are many, many more, but uh, I think this will help you write your paper. 
It's the moral argument. It's the moral argument. I'm sure that in your class, somewhere along the way, the professor mentions something like the fact that, you know, Christians are to blame for a lot of the troubles in the world. The phobias, the, the bigotry, wars, and so on and so forth. And I'll admit, Christians, in the name of God, have done some bad things. I admit that. And some who aren't Christians, but using the church and using God, have done some terrible things. But that doesn't mean that God is a terrible God. What they've done doesn't add up with what Jesus has said. I just wish once in a while they'd, you know, pick on Islam and some of the things Muhammad has said. I mean, Muhammad made it very clear he wanted to annihilate anybody who does not follow Islam in the Quran. Just read a book recently called Jesus and Muhammad. Fascinating book. Where do they agree and where do they disagree? Anyway, I'm getting a little carried away and that's not the paper you're writing. Come back to me when you're doing your world religion class. Let's get back, let's get back to the moral argument. See, what you live in and what I live in at your campus and in my community and the society around us is called moral relativism, which is the idea that, you know, we ought to live by this rule. What's right for you is right for you, and what's right for me is right for me. And I will, I will impose my rights on you and don't impose your rights on me. And if we could all live this way, hmm, we would find ourselves in perfect harmony. Lie, 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 lie. There is no truth to that. In fact, the reason we have so much disharmony and so much immorality in our world today is because we all want to live by what we think is right. It always leads to chaos. It never, never leads to anything truthful or right or moral. Let's take it a step further. You know, sometimes we think about morals, we think about good and bad. You know, good and bad oftentimes are very subjective. And, and it's up to my opinions. For instance, I think it's bad to eat oysters. They are tasteless, they are gross, they're high in cholesterol. But you might think it's good to eat oysters. You love that texture and uh, you moderate yourself so you don't get uh, cholesterol problems. Maybe you don't have cholesterol problems. There's nothing wrong for you. That's okay. You know what? Eating oysters is not bad. I just think it's bad. You think it's good. I'm not wrong. I'm not right. You're not right. You're not wrong. It's just kind of a personal opinion. But there's a difference, however, between subjective opinion and objective truth. Right and wrong. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Let's imagine that there's a little boy, it could be in Chicago, it could be in Calcutta, it could be in Beijing, China, who is playing in the middle of a street... They've gotten loose to the parent. The parent can't find them. And there are trucks coming. It would be your moral duty. It would be your objective moral duty to warn and rescue that child. If you just stood there and watched and allowed that truck to run that child over, people would hate you for it. Why? Because objectively, it's just, it just makes sense that that's wrong to do. Now, where does that Moral objectivity of what's right and what's wrong in, in its very essence, where does that come from? Was it part of the Big Bang? No. Where does that come from? Is it possible that it comes from a moral lawgiver who brought the universe into being and wrote on the hearts of men a compass, a sense of right and wrong. By the way, the more rebellious, the more rebellious people become, they try then, they begin to pervert 
that objective sense of what is right and wrong, which we're experiencing today. But you can't deny the fact that within all of us is a sense of what is objectively right and what's objectively wrong. Where does that come from? I want to read to you a letter that was submitted by an atheist. It's actually an article uh, that was submitted. Listen to what he said. Although I'm a secular atheist, if you will, I accept that the great majority of people would be morally and spiritually lost without religion. Can anyone seriously argue that crime and debauchery are not held in check by religion? Is it not comforting to live in a community where the rule of law and fairness are expected, are, are respected? Would such be likely if Christianity were not there to provide a moral compass to the great majority? Do we secularists not benefit out of all proportion from a morally responsible society? An orderly society is dependent on a generally accepted morality. There can be no such morality without religion. Has there ever been a more perfect and concise moral code than the one Moses brought down from the mountain? Those who doubt the effect of religion on morality should seriously ask the question, just what are the immutable moral laws of secularism? Be prepared to answer, if you are honest, that such laws simply do not exist. The best answer we can ever hear from secularists to this question is hodgepodge of strained relativist talk of situational ethics. They can cite no overriding authority other than that of fashion. For the great majority in the West, it is the Judeo-Christian tradition which offers a template. All I'm trying to say to you is that you don't have to feel so ignorant in that class just because that man advances his arguments and tries to infuse doubt in your mind. Look around you with the Bible and even outside of the Scriptures. God has left so much evidence, such a trace that He is. To me, the question is not, does God exist? The question is, why wouldn't anybody believe that God exists? And now, I want to read you Scriptures from the Word of God To remind all of us of the existence of God. And I want you to think about everything that we have just now said. And ask yourself, doesn't the scripture make even more sense? Isn't God wonderful for how he has revealed himself to us? And what a shame on humanity for turning its back and all that God has revealed. And I want this to be kind of a, a worshipful and, and I want it to be a, at the same time a celebration time as I read this word. So I'm going to ask you to stand as I read several verses from the scriptures. And I want you to listen as I read with a sense of worship. Only fools say in their hearts there is no God. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. 
Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Who else has held the oceans in his hand? Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? Who else knows the weight of the earth or has weighed the mountains and hills on a scale? Who is able to advise the spirit of the Lord? Who knows enough to give him advice or teach him? Has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? Does he need instruction about what is good? Did someone teach him what is right or show him the path of justice? No, for all the nations of the world are but a drop in the bucket. They're nothing more than dust on the scales. He picks up the whole earth as though it were a grain of sand. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? asked the Holy One. Look up into the heavens. Who created all the stars? He brings them out like a mighty army, one after another, calling each by its name because of his great power and incomparable strength. Not a single one is missing. Oh, Jacob. Oh, Christians. How can you say the Lord does not see your troubles? Oh, Israel, how can you say God ignores your rights? Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired and young men will fall in exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Amen. That's our God, and he's worthy of our worship, and he's worthy of our praise. Father, the world may doubt your existence, and at times we too may doubt your existence by our experiences, but God, you have made it so clear in your word, you've made it so clear in nature, that you are the everlasting God, that you are worthy of our praise and worthy of our submission to your might and to your will. And as we leave this place in a few moments, oh God, I pray that we will leave with renewed confidence. The question is not, does God exist? (laughs) The question is, why would anybody think that God does not exist?